I love that you did that, that you had that those sessions. That's Hello, everyone, and welcome to Living a Life Through Books, the podcast about everything bookish. I'm your host, Dr. Shanaz Ahmed, and today is Book Club. Please note, we will discuss the whole book, so consider this your spoiler alert. Now, usually I'll tell you about how to support me, but I'm going to skip that here, and I will add all of that in the show notes, and I'll talk about it at the end of the episode. Now, before we go to book club, I want to talk a bit about how book club came about. It was really the process of trying to build community. So we have book club. I'm also trying to build community by creating an exclusive retreat. It's going to be in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, September 28th through October 1st, 2023. That's this year. And if you want more information about it, please do not hesitate to reach me. It's called Fall Into Yourself, How to Be Happy in Today's Crazy World. And um, without further ado, let's get right to book club. Welcome to book club. We are doing True Biz by Sarah Novick. And I guess it's just you and me, Erin, so... Let's just uh, make it a quick section. Although this is a really good book, and I know you have a lot of thoughts about it. I just know. I read this, and I, my first thought is, as I was reading this, I was going, Aaron, Aaron, Aaron. That's all I was thinking. Is I was thinking about you, because I, I know you're going through stuff. But my real first thoughts were, in the beginning, I didn't like the book. I just didn't get it. I was like why are we reading this book? I'm just not sure what's going on. Who are these characters? You know, all these relationships. I wasn't vested in it until more towards the end. It took, gosh, it took 60% before I was really starting to get like, oh, I get it. That was my first thought is it just took a bit and I was a little frustrated, but okay. Well, and I suggested the book, just based on reviews and um, recommendations from other people. I hadn't read it yet before we put it on the list. Okay. So um, I didn't know what to expect. I knew, I knew it was about deaf culture. I knew it was about um, a deaf school that was getting shut down. So I had at least that basic information. But my first thoughts were, wow, that I did. I thought that the author did a good job of like, taking a auditory experience and concept of deafness and giving the reader an idea of what it's like to go through that. Uh, and of course, each of the different characters, as we know, having read it, um, has a little bit different experience with with deafness, um, uh, different levels of deafness, different uh, backgrounds, like being born into a deaf family, being born into a hearing family. But I loved how there was like there were there were a couple of scenes that I can um, remember that you just really got the experience, you know, the description and and kind of an idea of the the experience of of having deafness and um and what that's like. So the book surpassed any of my expectations, but my expectations going in were pretty low. So, <laughs> um, and I also know. The other reason why I really wanted to read this is because uh, I understand that the author um, is deaf. And so I didn't is, know that. That's what I read. So I assume that to be true. There's not that many, like, what do I want to say? Pop culture books that are written by deaf authors. That's so. that's really cool that she's deaf and she wrote the book. Yes. Yes. So that's, I don't know. That's my first thoughts. I really loved it. I, I loved the characters by the end. I did feel vested. You're right. I am going through, you know, our, our family is going through diagnosis of uh, deafness and hearing loss in my daughter. So um, that definitely makes me want to, you know, relate to this and, you know, and, and I don't know, be influenced by this book, but um, it has direct uh, implications to my own life. But I, I really thought it was powerful. I enjoyed it. Right. I thought originally, you know, when it first started, it started more like a statistic. It was more like 
okay, well, in so many cases of deafness, this happens, and then this happens, and then they have the story. And um, I was just kind of like skimming through it. I was like, okay, what's going on? I don't get it. What, what? You know, and then I did the audio. So all of Charlie's audio was that scratchy audio. And I was like, okay, all right, I'm getting, okay. Is this just to tell us it's Charlie for us to differentiate that it's her with the scratchy audio? But then you get into this whole issue of her dealing with the cochlear implant. And the the bigger issue for me in this book is, um, I mean, I didn't love the book. But, you know, it's like it's one of these things. It's like I'm not going to recommend it. But then I feel bad. I feel like a bad human being because I'm like, this is more of an instructional book. People need to be aware of this. So you really need to read and be more aware of deafness. And it's kind of like people saying you need to read more black books and you need to read more this book. And and so I'm kind of like, you're a horrible person. You really need to tell more people to read this and people need to be aware of deafness. And I'm kind of like, okay. But, you know, I think for me, the relationship between Charlie and her mother, I think that was that whole thing of what a parent wants versus what a child wants. And now, you know, I, thought about, you know, when uh, Dr. Marsh, wait, you weren't there when Dr. Marsh was there, right? For the I was not. Okay, no, because I'm right kind of like, there's this one thing, I don't know, like, I think Dr. Marsh always talked about this. Um, he's like, well, you know, a team when everyone's done, he'll be like, well, I gave her the graduation speech or whatever speech. And I've already talked to her because she's a teenager and she can make decisions for herself if she wants to do the cleft surgery or not or which way she wants to go if she wants more surgeries and you know being part of team you have this where a parent is advocating for a child and or thinks they are advocating for their child but then it's ultimately it's a child that has to go through all of this and what is that definition of what a child is going through. I know I'm talking cleft too, but you know, but it's just in Charlie's case, um, it was, okay, let's go with themes. What are the main themes? I mean, it's hearing, obviously, society's acceptance of hearing people. And I also think it's relationships within families of people who can hear and cannot hear. Am I missing anything? Friendships? I think that, um, and this might be like a nuanced piece that because I'm in now like in the deaf community tangentially, but I am, you know, right. Um, I'm, a, I'm a hearing parent of a child that has hearing loss. I can see that there's a theme about the different, there's different views on how you approach socializing, educating children who have hearing loss or deafness. And um, that there's like three different kind of different viewpoints that people go by. So there's this, Aural, oral um, is what some people will will term it, which is basically like learning how to use a device to, you know, uh, try to amplify the sound and then lip reading. And so they never learn sign. It's all about how do you use a device, cochlear implants, hearing, uh, the hearing aids, Baja, you know, like any of those devices, right? And then there's another point of view. So, so those are basically people who think, you should not use sign and everything should be device driven or other behavior compensation. And then there's the group of people who think that, and this is primarily like generationally deaf families where ASL is, you know, some, or some kind of sign is used. And so um, I, I don't know that, I don't know if there's like a term for it, but um, this is still my like being new to the community. So I don't know if there's a, a a name that they go under, but there's that point of view and you don't use devices at all. And it's kind of frowned upon to use devices. And then there's like an in-between group that believe it or not, like this is where our family falls, but believe it or not, there's a lot of families that like think you have to go to one of those other polar opposites, but in the middle is total communication, which means that you may use devices of varying kinds, but you may also use a sign um, language of some kind and you kind of whatever, you know, you you uh, support in, in any way that we can add support and 
they will use their own preferences. So like you may use sign in the house and outside of the house in certain circumstances and not in others, but it allows children who, as we've learned from the book, 90% of which uh, of deaf children are born to hearing families. And it allows them though, to be able to kind of have deaf culture, but also, uh, you know, especially if they started out in like not, you know, not having any hearing differences, it allows them to continue with being, you know, verbal and interacting verbally um, with the world. So I don't know, like there's these three different there's these three different schools of thought. And I think in the book, one of the themes was talking about how complete reliance upon the oral oral, just using devices and lip reading is not an appropriate technique for most or, you know, system for most children, because it causes language deprivation and that causes behaviors and that causes isolation. And um, I think there is a theme of that in the book. I agree with you. I felt a lot of the themes was really geared towards how much a child is fine with just ASL and how much more they can communicate with ASL and how much they feel like they belong through that as opposed to using electronic mechanisms. I think that was one of the big themes. And of course, you know, the end of the book was all these dates and all these deaf and blind schools and, you know, schools of disability, how many of them throughout the years that have closed and somewhere in like 2000s, even, you know, like somewhere recent. And I, you know, there's so many, it's just like the last two minutes, I think of the book was that type names of the uh, schools and the states and the dates they were open. And uh, why do you think that is? Is it just funding or... Yeah, I do think that it's funding. I also think that, um, so like, and I think they hit on this in the book, part of deaf history is that there was this movement and I, you know, part of me not, I am still learning again, I'm new to the community. So I know there's like a name for, I think it's like the Munich decision or the Munich ruling or something could to that effect. So there was a consortium that met globally in the, what, like 1800s, I think, or late 1800s, early 1900s, that basically is the reason why that people think the oral, oral is the like way to go. And it basically said that by using sign language, you prevent children from learning spoken language. And so if you teach them sign language young, you are going to cause them language delay or like prevent them from from learning verbal language and so you should so the recommendation for all professionals working in audiology and working um in uh with children who had deafness was we need to stop you know and this is true in education as well a lot of education people were in this consortium but we need to stop allowing asl or other sign languages to be used and so we need to do everything we can to make these children be lip readers. And that has like, that has been disproven. Research has disproven that whole theory and concept. But here in the United States, for whatever reason, it's like, we don't even pay attention to the re- the more modern research that says, no, <laughs> that's you, you don't prevent children from learning spoken language by teaching them ASL at a young age or teaching them a signed language at a young age. But because of that, like that was the whole reason why people had these schools was to so that that there would be a community where these children could learn from native ASL speakers. And and since there's like this huge still movement about this Munich decision, I think is what it's called, then I do think that that's what has created a situation where funding doesn't go to that. Also, like let's be real that funding for education in general in the United States has decreased in recent years. So it's not surprising that these schools are shutting down. And you can imagine it that I'm sure the cost to run them is very high because a lot of the time you are uh, like having, there's like a boarding situation. Like people, there's only one in a state maybe. And so all of the kids from around the state who want to learn in a signed community a primarily signed community would go and live there in that place at that school to 
to be in that community. So it's the expenses I would imagine are kind of high. But yeah, I think it's that movement that that it just is like we can't get rid of it. So people would rather device their child completely and never learn, never take the time to learn sign. Right. I know that like when my cousin's kids like were little, the recommendation, I mean, these are hearing kids and like completely, you know, every all the facilities are in place that my cousin would like speak to them in sign language, like little things like, do you want more or is it all gone? You know, all gone more, you know, things like that. She would, I was like, what are you doing? She's like, well, you're supposed to talk to your kid both by speech and using sign language, because if you use sign language, their language develops faster is what the current thing is. This is like, we're talking (laughs) hearing, I mean, educated hearing parents. Can you put that in side-by-side dichotomy? Like, okay, so hearing kids should learn sign language first because it's going to it's going to accelerate their, their language, language development. Yes. Which I know because I was also told that and we did learn baby sign, which is right. just basic sign. Most of the, most of which is true ASL, but depending on the source that you were using, but at the same time, the same medical establishments and, you know, educational establishments are saying, well, deaf ch- children shouldn't learn sign because it, it stops them from learning verbal language. And that is the, that is the insanity. Uh, it, it's absolute yeah. craziness. How like, can, how can these things both be true? <laughs> how can ASL, you know, delay verbal language? If that's the case, why are hearing children being taught baby ASL or whatever when they're a child? And deaf children are being deprived of learning that. Yes. And for fear of being deprived. Yes. And, and it really, it is a fear if you... Like there, there are educators, medical professionals that will tell families like that. It's literally a fear. If you do this at this young age, you are going to stunt their verbal language development. And families are afraid of stunting that because, you know, kind of absolute bullshit. And also the belief that you need a cochlear implant. Like the mom was so much into this whole, you need a cochlear implant and blah, blah, blah. And I think for me, the point was, you know, towards the end of the book, when when things don't go right with Charlie's implants and the mom is still talking to the doctor about the other side. And, you know, the, the thing that really got me was throughout the book, you know, well, not in the beginning, but once Charlie joins the school, once she starts learning sign, she preferred sign. She preferred to be in that environment. She didn't care about the stupid implant. She just wanted to do sign. Mm -hmm. And she's been trying to tell her mom, no, I don't want these implants. They don't help, blah, blah, blah. And there's always this thing of your child. When when you can make your own decisions, you can go for it then. You know, that kind of a thing. Again, that, you know, that concept of, when can a child make their own decision and what is the right decision? Because in this case, it's a hearing, it's a hearing versus non-hearing decision. And, you know, where a parent is probably thinking, no, this is best for you to be in a hearing society and a parent is not going to get it. Mm -hmm. But I would have hoped she would have got it after what happened. Yeah. I mean, I think that the issue that we deal with today with so many people like not learning sign, even though they have they have a family that is, you know, has a deaf child or, you know, they are themselves deaf. A lot of that has to like there's so many factors that factor into it. We've talked about like the medical establishment and the educational establishment, like preferring and putting the fear in families. But I think that the I have read some other books that are about deaf culture and the easy scapegoat is to say, well, this hearing parent does not understand the perspective of their, their deaf child. And so, you know, they do this because they think what's best is, you know, they think of hearing loss as less than, and they think that they need to fix their child. And, and that is like, that is a very common argument that comes from, or, you know, common explanation that comes from the only ASL or only signed community. And 
I think that that is in part true what they're saying, but I also think that's oversimplified, like now, like walking through this personally. And one thing that I didn't realize, and I guess, you know, you just never know till you're in it. And this goes to Brene Brown's book that the, the Alice of the Heart, I finished it today, by the way. So I'm, did I'm you bringing get it? In another. I did. Yeah. Good, and, it, good, good. Um, and it was wonderful. But, you know, she, well, all of her books talk about vulnerability, right? Right. And how, but this book particularly talked about how when we are vulnerable, we respond in certain ways and kind of like that interaction of emotions and how emotions can mm-hmm. be at one time together and how that can affect behavior. And when I was listening to that, I was thinking about this book and also like personal experience, you know, that we're walking through. There is a vulnerability when you are told as a hearing parent that your child has deafness or has some level of of hearing loss and communication is like so important to relationships, right? Like, Hey, Brene Brown's another point. Communication is important. And basically you, I think that the more complicated explanation for what Charlie and her mom are going through is that Charlie's mom, when she found out that her child was deaf, was in a vulnerable position and she knew that it's important for there to be communication between herself and her child. And she also doesn't have a lot of confidence in herself. I don't think she's a a person who kind of makes like she has her own insecurities. And so, you know, so she felt like maybe she didn't. And I think she still does throughout the book express that. I don't think I can learn this language. Like I'm not even going to try because I don't think I can learn this. And, and So I think that because she wasn't confident in her own ability to learn something, she knew and she knew that communication was so important that she took the easiest route out. Like this is what the medical community is telling me is the easiest route to be able to communicate with my child. And I know communication is integral to our relationship. So I'm going to do this. And she is like, I'm sure 90%, 95% of all the other families out there that are dealing with this, they don't have confidence. And, you know, there's so much more to parenting a child who has a different experience to you. This is when we're talking about hearing, uh, you feel uh, inadequate as a parent. And I think she was feeling that. And like, and so, you know, what's the easiest way to make myself feel not um, vulnerable, to make myself feel safe? I'm going to go to this thing that is the doctors tell me is the easiest way to make this, to fix this situation, to fix this situation. And it didn't fix it. Right. For me. In that case, I'm thinking in terms of we can only provide for another person based on our knowledge and our experience and our insight. We don't know what we don't know. Mm-hmm. I can sit here and talk about what a deaf parent or a child of a deaf parent should do and or should not do and all of that. And it would be an absolute moot point because A, I don't have a child, B, I don't have a child, you know, with a hearing loss and things like that. I mean, there are some, there's some wisdom I may have, but I can only go based on what I know. So as a hearing person, what do I know? I know that it's important to have our facilities. I It's important to hear. It's important to see. It's important. I mean, I sprained my hand. It's important for your hand to not be sprained, you know, to function. You know, these are normal functions. But if I would have been born with my hand sprained and this was my hand for my life and I could not make certain movements, guess what? That would become a norm for me. And I'd be like, no, this is fine. This This is how it is. Let's work with it. But everyone else, their norm, because that's the thing with blinders, is we can only help other people based on what we know. And we don't know what we don't know. And I think that's a very big part of this book, is we don't know what we don't know. As far as producing a child, like the vulnerability of producing a child who is some... I guess, defective in some way or imperfect in some way, whatever negative word you want to use. I'll tell you a story that um, I think, you know, I I used to be in that Muslim Jewish women thing. Used to be, not anymore. But anyway, one of the stories there was one of the Jewish sisters, her daughter, well, she actually passed away in her 30s and like two, three years ago. But the point is she had 
a like a health condition. I don't know the details, but she had a health condition and that she'd been struggling through essentially all her life. And she died in her 30s. I mean, obviously. So now the thing is, this mom says that I think they went to Israel or something. And the and the mom talked about climbing this mountain and they were climbing and they were going on this hike and the daughter couldn't do it. It was out of breath and something. And the mom's like, I just broke down because I gave birth to a defective child. Like it's my fault. Like I didn't provide for my own child for her to be healthy. Like, you know, it was just like, it's kind of like, you know, I didn't deal with that. So like, that was not like part of my experience, but I think that's because of my occupation. (laughs) Right. But I'm just saying some people do. You're right. Because that was mentioned. I think it was mentioned in the book too. Like the, the, the fact that somehow, somehow when you have a child that you didn't, you did something wrong and you intentionally made your child disabled, essentially. Yeah, having worked with, you know, a, in, as a genetic counselor for so many years, like that is like the most common reaction that parents have to, and especially moms, to any diagnosis in a child. But also being in the profession, I knew that that's misplaced. Like that's, you can't, you can't have control over these things. So it's not your fault. And there's nothing you did that caused it. It's just something that happened. It's just the way things are. So I didn't go in with any guilt feelings, but that is, that is something that I know lots of parents deal with. And that's like their first reaction and how, and then that's another point about how this mom responded. Like if you're still sitting there processing your own guilt over something, you know, a diagnosis in a child, like how can you, how can you even begin to sort through the vulnerability aspects and get to the bottom of really what is the best thing? You're so vulnerable. You have a lot of fear about the future and you have a lot of fear. You have a lot of guilt and you're processing through all of that. Plus just like, how do I do everyday things with my child and for myself and navigating the, the doctor's appointments and, you know, all the school and all of the things. And these families are making you know, everything feels very rushed and they're having to make decisions without necessarily consulting a community of people that have been through this right? and know what it's like. And, you know, I, I also had the benefit of having experience with families who had walked through this even before I, before we were walking through this. So that was a benefit and it helped me to not be in the same, like, crisis situation of trying to work through all of the feelings and all of the things at one time. But that's what this mom was going through, you know, and she never got over her feelings of inadequacy or vulnerability or fear. I didn't like this um, mom. Or you know, guilt. Talk about, you know, talk about characters, you know, you like or didn't like. Charlie's mom was a character I did not like. I just, it's like, I felt like she wasn't hearing her. I don't know. For me, as a reader, I'm listening to this book and I'm like, she is screaming and she's telling you, I don't want this implant, you know, just take it out. And then the mom's like, you're young, blah, blah, blah. And Charlie's like, well, fine, I'll take it out when I'm 18 and I can do it myself. And the mom's still not freaking getting it. And, you know, the reality is when Charlie is 18, if the mom had, you know, we don't know what happens. But let's say the mom forces Charlie to get the implant. And then when she's 18, she's going to take it out. Then what? Then the mom loses communication with her child. Period. Done. I did not. I just, I don't know. I There's something about that that just didn't sit with me. The other thing was that kid, Art, um, what is the the baby who was born? The baby was born deaf. Yes. And Mm -hmm. they were going to implant the baby. Yes. And the brother gets really angry about that. Because yes. he knows what um, Charlie has been through. Yes. Yes. And the brother is deaf, but, you know, he signs. But it that's the thing. And uh, I think, w- were the parents hearing? I think he was hearing parents, right? Uh, dad was mom, but dad is an interpreter, an yeah, ASL okay. interpreter. And my mom was not. Mom was deaf. But that's the thing. Yeah. And you, like, you have, um, no, not hearing parents, deaf parents, potential. And you have a child, and they're making a decision for an implant on a baby 
And, you know, after knowing what Charlie's going through, obviously he was ticked off. And and that's huge, though. I mean, I, I, I don't ever wish I'm in that position to, you know, be like, let's implant a child. But, you know, when you think of it from a hearing person's point of view, you're like, it's a hearing world. If this child hears sounds and is able to talk with those sounds, which Charlie can talk, you know, so the child can recognize it. Because even if implant technology really advances later on, if she gets implanted, she won't know the sounds and she'd have to, you know, she won't potentially get the speech. You know, it's, I they don't say know. that, but um, I've known multiple adults that made that decision as an adult, Uh huh. mainly adults who like had adult onset, very rapidly progressing hearing loss and they uh-huh. got cochlear implants. But I've also known adults that did that that it worked. And I've known it also did that, that it didn't work. I think that there's probably a lot more kids that it doesn't work on, but we don't like ask kids for their input. We, we ask the know. parents what their perception is generally in those, in a lot of those studies. So I, I think, don't know. I think if it's an adult, a hearing adult who's lost hearing, and then they got a cochlear implant, all the sounds that's coming through, they'll be able to express exactly what's coming through the implant is it just which means you're not hearing anything they'll be able to tell you i'm not hearing anything it's just all static or i am hearing words because here's the thing if you implant if you're putting a cochlear implant and all the child is hearing is static and there's no definitive words then wtf i mean seriously what the heck have you done you've just yeah it's a it was a it's a crazy book i think it was just you know, I was surprised it was the Reese Book Club pick because, you know, Reese Book Club normally. More happy some, books. I guess more happy, but no, <laughs> I guess more strong female characters. And what was the deal with that child at the end in the church where they made? Oh, what was yeah. it? Did she have hearing and they made her lose her hearing or? No, no, it was a boy and he um, he did not have hearing loss. But well, I mean, he sorry, he did have hearing loss, but I think it was like maybe varying level. And but and he came from like at least his dad was uh, um, was deaf. I don't Mm -hmm. know, but I didn't get the impression that his mom was, but his Mm -hmm. dad was. And and then, of course, they go to this church and this church claims to cure deafness, which. Yeah. And there's a whole judgment statement and like a value statement. Like I mean, here and yeah, and and they didn't, and they made it worse, and they I mean, were traumatic. Well, they, they literally traumatized me. It was like a Slumdog Millionaire. Have you ever seen that movie? It's I have. Li- yeah, it's literally kind of taking away, and like I'm like, how do you even justify something? It was just very, it was traumatic just hearing about it. I mean, just it's kind of like, oh my god. Oh, I thought it, I thought so too. That scene was very traumatic. Like I cried. I could not I was read like, through that scene. I was just like I was listening, and I'm like, "What the?" Well, and, and like another thing that I wanted to step back to is like Charlie. I am, you know, Charlie is not like the most lovable character in the world because of True. her behavior. She has a lot of drug use, a lot of right. um, what some people would see as like really negative behavior. But I think part of that is because of her family situation, right? Like, and I'm not talking about her parents being separated. I'm talking about her mom never like trying to meet her where she needs her mom to meet her and be part of, of, of her life in a, and support her. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and also I think years and years of, of isolation, social isolation, because she's not taught sign and she has a cochlear implant and can't like regularly socialize with friends. Nobody can, you know, she can't interact with them because it doesn't work. That is why she has the behavior that she has. That's why she's seeking out like these drugs to make herself feel better. And I thought that was an interesting perspective. The other thing that I like, like, I don't, I mean, we haven't gotten to, we haven't said this, but the book is about how in the end, like not only is the school shutting down, but like these students who are ticked off, these deaf students who are ticked off, decide to go help blow up a cochlear implant manufacturing facility yes which the activist part of me was like wow (laughs) i don't know how i felt about it but i was kind of like i was i was torn but i mean i see why they did it i was torn too the activist part of me also was like the righteous part of me was like yeah just 
burn it down. You're right. These people, all they care about is the money. They don't care about the care. Yeah. And they're making false, you know, they were like, they're making false claims. They're telling families that this is going to work. And if it, you know, and also, you know, part of Charlie's problems was that the, these cochlear implants were going bad and the, the, the system was literally causing her to have seizures. Yeah. She was hugely detrimented by using these. And I agree that they were not being transparent. And I think that maybe that's another theme we didn't really hit on is that there is a responsibility of like medical supply companies and things like that to like get it right and to be transparent in their claims so that people can use that to make appropriate decisions. And I think giving a well-rounded view of this is not going to be the easy fix that Every, medical you know, companies they're saying and it. medical companies and transparency. <laughs> I know that, that's that's hilarious, Erin. Well, I mean, that's hilarious. I mean, okay, okay. I shouldn't generalize. I should not generalize. But there are a lot of medical companies that are in it. It's business and it's money. And I don't care. Fix the data. Just whatever it is, make it seem like it's a good thing. But, uh, you know, so there is the medical thing. The other thing I really want to talk about is who was the the principal? The She was dating yes. Mel. Um, and I think she was listening. I can't remember her first name. Yeah, it was starts with an F. I, can't, I just listened to the book today, too. Anyway, she uh, was, you know, her decision to not tell her partner that the school was shutting down. What What are your thoughts about that? I, I kind of was like... Okay. And then at the end, well, Brene Brown would say it goes back to vulnerability. (laughs) (laughs) Because it does. I do have something to tell you about Brene Brown after this um, episode, (laughs) because I don't want to bring it up in this episode, episode, but I will bring up something similar to what I'm going to say is that I was really intrigued that there was such a thing as black sign language. Yes, there is. And I didn't know that. Like, I didn't know there were all these different kinds of sign language. I was just I like, think they break it down. Wow. Don't they break it down in the book that they the do. reason why it is that way is because, because there was segregation. Expressions. Well, and there was segregation. So, like, ASL developed in, like, the eighteen early what, early to mid-1800s. And then uh, and, and in that time frame from then to, like, post-Civil War to Jim Crow era – Everybody, whether you are black, white, whatever, you learned sign language within a local school and it was not segregated. Everybody learned together. But then Jim Crow South segregation, which segregation actually happened nationwide. Right. Because of like redlining and things like that in places. Mm -hmm. Right. So so then the schools, while the language developed together to a certain point, once segregation happened, especially in the South, then you had black deaf schools and white deaf schools and you had black teachers that were at you know deaf teachers that were at one and white at the other and the languages because language is um an ever-evolving thing not i mean any languages right any living language is yeah, a developing and it's also language. a cultural thing too yes yes it is cultural because but i mean that's because it was being taught within the community the black community which of course, any language in a specific community is going to take on culturally different aspects of the community around it. A lot of, I understand that a lot of BASL sign language uses two hands. There's a lot of two-handed signs and there's less two-handed signs in ASL because of how there became a movement to, to try to simplify to one hand. Because what if you needed to do something and so you have like use your other hand for something while <laughs> And sign with one. So the language developed separately from during the entire time of segregation, which was a significant amount of time. Um, What, like 50, 60, I don't know how many years, 70, I don't know, a a long time. It's a long time, a very long time. Decades. And then whenever segregation ended and they started putting everybody back together in the same deaf schools, you had separate language development. And then you know, really culturally, a lot of Black Americans and white Americans still are socially separated because of like the world and all the things that feed into that. And so culturally, is content- BASL has continued to kind of evolve is my understanding, separate from ASL. Some things go to, you know, and I will say like in my classes that I've taken, and it probably depends on the institution from where you take your classes for ASL, but they will teach us some BASL and kind of talk about that stuff and 
regionally, there's a lot of differences in the signs too that people don't realize. I think from outsider, I didn't until I was taking the classes and learning. Kind of like an accent. Exactly. It's kind of like an accent. And so, wow. Yeah, there's regional dialects of ASL, and that's kind of interesting too. So it's not as uniform as people would think. But yeah, the BASL thing was really cool. I loved how they incorporated that in there, uh, and they incorporated part of the history. I've learned part of the history through my classes, though. So it's it's interesting how that has evolved. And you were talking about Brene Brown. I cut you off. And you oh, said- yeah, sorry. Vulnerability. Yeah, so the I think that the principal didn't tell her partner that the school was shutting down because they had financial troubles. Like right. it sounded like their housing was kind of dependent upon mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the job situation. And so mm-hmm. she maybe felt like, you know, she was going to let her partner down by losing this job, but it was really important to her. You know, I think maybe she felt like, well, my partner's going to tell me, uh, Mel's going to tell me that I need to get a new job. I need to start looking now. Whereas, you know, she wanted to try to stick with it to the end and fight for it till the end. And I think that was important to her because of her ties to the deaf community. Right. I also think she was having a hard time coping because, you know, her mom died. And, yeah. And like she even before she died, she was having like these dementia situations, right. which in her mom's deaf. And that's really hard to to navigate. So I, I think that she was just struggling with coping herself. I'm trying to look up... Um the description, the name of this woman, because I know it's there in the... Was it Fiona? No, it's an F. No, 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 no. Let's see. Uh, Language, River Valley School for the Deaf, and then Residential School. Austin is the school's golden boy. That's who is in love with Charlie in Austin. February. That's right. It was a unique name. February. February. Right. And she's... um, Yeah. I forget. Is she... um, She's hearing, right? Or no? Yeah, but she's Coda. She, okay. We, child of deaf adult. Okay. That's what, yeah, yeah. But, right, right, right. Because I remember when Charlie makes the comment of, you know, you're such a, don't be a bitch or you're such a bitch or something like that. And she hears her and I'm like, that was great, by the way. I love that. That was like, that was good. So um, what else do we want to talk about? Favorite characters? La- well, before we get into favorite characters, I have one more like, topic that Mm -hmm. when we were talking about the cochlear implant company and how they try to blow it up uh Mm -hmm. the medical community so the medical community is really represented in this book by the the character of the doctor who did the cochlear implant and she like goes to see that doctor a couple times right Right. so we were talking about consent and us and kind of we didn't say that but you're you know like her mom's making these decisions. My question is, did that doctor not have a responsibility to the child who's a teenager and quite close to, I mean, she's not that far off. What is she like 16? 16. I, I thought she was I think 16. She was like, yeah, I think she's 16. Um, So she's not that far off from being an adult at 18. And did he not have a responsibility to advocate for her or to ask her what she wanted and then like to maybe find a way to mediate the situation and get the mom to kind of like see that it's not worth doing a surgery if she's just going to take them out. I mean, in the end, I think he ends up like he, I think he's the one that takes the cochlear implant out Mm -hmm. and he was like, Hey, it's a good thing that you got this thing out, Mm -hmm. but I don't ever feel like he ever stood up. And I think that that is a pretty good embodiment of what I've seen in the medical community. But mm-hmm. being a provider, I'm just wondering, like, did he not have a responsibility to advocate for her? Again, the, the patient, if a doctor himself or herself or themselves, whatever, if the doctor cannot, is not deaf, they can only think in terms of what they know in terms of hearing and their biases will come in that, well, yeah, I'm a doctor, but I think... I'm here to help children hear. I think cochlear implants will help children hear. So I'm just going to do it. I'm not going to stop and think about whether what I'm doing is right or wrong. But, you know, I'm just going to just, I'm a hearing person. This is what it is, kind of a thing. So, and I think you're right. Yeah. So, what else? Um, Favorite characters. Favorite characters. I think. I really think my favorite character was Austin. Austin. Yep. I was thinking Austin I really liked him. Yes. Really liked him a lot. I also, I also did like February because 
I think she was just so dedicated and she could have been like so much more sticklery or, you know, like, like, like she could have been like a real, I don't have another word, hard ass to Charlie because of her attitude coming in, but she wasn't. And also like, she kind of covered for the students in the end and helped get them out of their like messy activist situation. (laughs) Right. I like Charlie's dad. I did too. That's a good point. That's a good one. I liked him too. Yeah. He was just, I liked him a lot. I think, you know, for him trying to balance Charlie and then to balance the mom, I was like, dude, you have a tough decision here. You're like, that's kind of um, tricky. So yeah, I like Charlie's dad a lot. And, uh, you know, characters I didn't like, um, probably Charlie's mom was just someone I just couldn't get into. I was very frustrated by her. And uh, yeah, I didn't like Charlie's mom and I and the whole activity in the church just oh, oh creeps, 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 creeps. I just I I just cannot handle that. So it's definitely a trigger warning kind of a thing. I mean, there's no triggering, but it is a trigger warning. I mean, it's um I guess it's not a trigger warning, but it's like a warning for graphic trauma, right? For graphic abuse, trauma kind of a thing. Graphic trauma, but I do think that there's a number of people who have suffered abuses from church situations like that, emotional abuses, maybe even physical abuses. And so that could be actually triggering for some people. Right, right. I um, Have you ever read A Little Life? I'm reading it right now. Are you serious? Yeah, I, I have it on ebook, so... Are you serious? You oh my god! I can't. How do but I? But I'm not, not know- very far. I'm only a couple chapters in. I'm how really slow. Not, how do I not know you're reading a little life? Wow, you're finally reading a little life. Anyway, uh, well then we'll well okay. Never mind. I'm not going to say anything. I I think I've given away enough already by saying anything. Um, yeah, I think um that's that. What do you what are your thoughts on? Uh, do you want to go into cover title and? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, first of all, before we go into that title, I'm going to go into title. What is the deal with Trubas? I didn't get it. Yeah. Okay. So that's like, okay, when you learn ASL, because it's its own language, uh-huh. they have their own sayings, right? Okay. Like their own, like, what do you call it? Idioms or like mm-hmm, their mm-hmm. own sayings. So like, it, for example, if you were to say, uh, I missed the boat, and that's what you mean in mm-hmm. English, I missed the boat, The how you sign it in ASL is train go, sorry, like the train is already gone. Mm-hmm. you're late sorry like you missed uh-huh. it so right. that's okay so um so that just is an illustration of how the sayings are different and true biz means like for real like if i were to use the slang term for real or like true shit that's literally what it means mm. how you sign it so it's kind of like a slang term mm. and so the, i don't know if other people know this but the cover that they have is deaf art that is showing the sign for true biz so is that right yes see that's the other thing is you know when we talk about like cover and all of that it's kind of like okay well okay here's the cover it's this right i can't make too many things with my hands but anyway oh you're supposed to do it like this okay it's like okay so that's like, and that's an example of deaf art. I don't know if the artist of that P of the cover art is mm-hmm. deaf, but that is very, a very like common style of deaf, deaf art is mm-hmm. what you see there. So for me, like they're trying to say like, this is the, this is the, this is for real guys. Like this is the real, okay. what's going on, like no jokes. Mm-hmm. Got and, it. Got it. Okay. And so I think it's appropriate it kind of illustrates deaf culture by using one of their own sayings, you know, and um, and I love the cover because it's illustrating, it's using deaf art to illustrate the title. So for me, it's it's fives, but I, again, that's different because I know the background of it and I know like the average person doesn't know that. Did I miss it? Was it there? Was it in the book? The true They do talk part? about true biz. It's one of those like pre-chapter explanations where they go through. Okay. Like the fact stuff. Okay. And they explain it there, but also like I've learned it in my classes. So yeah, I missed it. It's one of the most common. The other one that like, what are they? I'm trying to think of it, like how it actually translates, but it's like, this means like the ultimate, like this is Uh, like the most, yeah, the ultimate, but it has a different word. Here's a different saying. Guess who's here. 
I know. I'm like, <laughs> like, okay. But I didn't know that. So that's why I was just like, I mean, I think I'm going to give the book. For me, I'm going to, it's a three across the board, unfortunately. Like I just, it's a three for me. But I know everyone rated it so highly, but you know, and you were a five across the board. And Dr. Healy, you just joined us. Are you there? Uh, I am here. Yeah, sorry. I didn't realize the time was different. So I missed the discussion. So sorry. Well, I'll tell you what. Why don't I give you just some time? Just go ahead and talk about the book. And, you know, I'll just let you just talk whatever you want about the book. And we'll uh, listen. And we can discuss back and forth for a little bit. Or we'll just call it quits. Uh, okay, um, uh, I enjoyed the book. Don't know uh, I was prepared to talk about it so quickly, but um, yeah, I, I thought it was really good. I liked her writing style. Uh, I thought there were parts that were um, entertaining and funny. I didn't know all of the, the deaf history that she went through, so I think that was really useful. I learned a lot about uh, deaf history and that I hadn't been previously aware of, even as someone in the medical field, so that was kind of cool. I liked the characters for the most part. I, I Yeah, I, in general, I thought it was really good. Did you have a favorite character? I said that I thought Austin was my favorite character and Shanaz really liked Charlie's dad. Favorite character? I, I kind of liked February, actually. Okay. <laughs> of course. <laughs> uh, uh, did you guys not like her? No, no, no. We did like her. We were just, you know, we're talking like favorite characters kind of thing who we really... Yeah, I said she was my second favorite because I felt like she really like stood up for the students and, you know, she tried to be reasonable and um, she was very dedicated to them and she was dedicated to her mom and yeah, and and obviously also Mel. So I I enjoyed her. Yeah, she kind of walked both worlds, I think, the hearing world and the the non-hearing world and kind of was a, you know, cultural kind of liaison maybe between the, between the two. So I like that part about her. I liked how dedicated she was to the the students. And I, I thought it was great that she, you know, went out and uh, caught the kids and figured out what they were doing before they even got it done. Um, I thought that was pretty amazing. Yeah, that, that was really good. So how would you rate the book? Like in general, like the cover, title... And um, final rating kind of thing. I would give it a four overall. I, I might read it again. I would probably recommend it to to some people. I don't know that it ranks as highly as some of the other books that that we've read recently that I've given fives though. Okay, well that's good. See, we at least got something. It's like- and I, I do want to add in on the recording so that people who are listening to this know sure. that I do not. I, I would recommend this book again, but I do not think that this book is appropriate for uh, like below a high school level. Yes, I, I would agree with that. Okay. Below a high school level. Okay. Yeah. Like middle, I don't even think, I don't think this would be appropriate for middle schoolers. Well, no, it would not be middle no. school. No, no, no. no yeah. But I just want schooler... to make sure parents know coming in, like, even though this is about deaf culture and about deaf students, it is not a below high school age. I would even say like maybe freshmen would be like borderline. So basically you're okay with a high schooler reading it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. I when you said below high school, I I sorry, I got confused. Yeah, okay. I was like a high schooler can read it. I mean, they could probably yeah. Oh yeah, below high school absolutely. Yeah, no. It's not for a below high school. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Absolutely. Okay. Anything else before I say that, you know, it was a great book club session and uh you know i look forward to our next well book i just wanted to get to, i i was curious about how dr healy felt about how the medical community was portrayed within the book like being a doctor i mean as a genetic counselor i feel like i kind of you know i'm not like offended by <laughs> necessarily anything but um but i didn't know what your thoughts were dr healy I thought it was unfortunately accurate based on my uh, experiences. So I I think that a lot of the medical community, uh, well, at least historically, um, has kind of taken that paternalistic, we know best feeling on uh, new technology and also just in general about how we expect people to function. We want people to function normally, whatever they we define that as. Um, and when people don't function normally, we want to fix the problem. And so if you identify something that's not functioning normal normally as a problem, then um, that can lead to a lot of the things that we saw in the book and his, saw throughout history as well. 
So I, I think it, I think it makes sense. Um, and so I, I would think that it would be great if people in the medical profession read this book and kind of saw the other side. And we, uh, it's interesting. I, I did some small group sessions with some med students, uh, at the med school, uh, before I left for, um, uh, before I left WashU and we talked about, this uh, in one of the discussions. Um, so we talked a little bit about um, what we think of and perceive as normal um, and how some things that are different may not necessarily be considered disabilities to the people that have them specifically with, with hearing. And so it was definitely blowing some minds um, when, in, that, in that discussion group when we talked about this. I remember um, some people not understanding at all how deafness wouldn't be considered a disability and why wouldn't one any when why wouldn't one want to to hear as as best that that one could it was definitely something they hadn't thought about before and so i, I think that's still something we need to work on in, in the medical community and definitely uh, making those connections with uh the patients and communities that we say that we advocate for. I think really listening to what those communities want and need is important um, as medical people. So, yeah. I love that you did that, that you had that those sessions. That's like, it's very heartening to hear that there are providers, you know, that are making sure that these topics are brought up and that students, you know, have the benefit of understanding that there's more than just the medical establishment perspective. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah definitely. I, I hope that those have, have continued. I actually don't because the, the curriculum was redesigned and, and I hope that there's something similar. I, I should reach out to them and, and ask if that's still uh, a topic that they discuss. I suspect it probably is, um, but I don't know exactly where in, in the curriculum it is these days. I think it would be good to have like books like this as part of, of the curriculum, like it's part of the medical training or whatever, or audiology residencies. <laughs> like, it's like, here you go. We've yeah. got to do this book. I think so. But you know, what do I know? Yeah. Well, we definitely try to get patients um, to come in and share their perspective. I know in, in med school, we do have uh, lots of patients come in and, and talk about their experiences uh, in just um, a classroom setting. And we also do that with one of my human genetics classes that I'm involved with on the undergrad campus. Um, we have uh, patients with genetic disorders come in and, and, and talk to, to the class about um, their their experiences in, in, in the, I guess, receiving healthcare. Um, so we're, we're trying to, to do the best we can. I don't, I don't know if everyone in the med school would read a book if assigned that wasn't, that wasn't directly related to the curriculum, but I think we should. And maybe we should have some, you know, some more discussion groups about this. I hope they make this book into a movie because I have found, like when I was teaching the genetics and pop culture class, that if there's a movie, students are very willing to watch a movie, even with their busy, like genetic counseling schedule, which is not exactly the same as med students, but similarly busy. And I can imagine maybe a med school student would be okay eating some popcorn and watching a movie and then talking yeah. about the movie. That would be awesome. And it is a Reese's, you know, Reese book, you know, her, her book club. And she um almost always draws from her new movies from her book club these days. Have you noticed that? Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. She takes her movies and I mean, she takes the books and Makes them into movies. And, you know, it's kind of like, that's why it's kind of like, I wish my book gets picked for Reese's book club because then it'll become a movie. It's like, okay, whatever. But <laughs> we can, uh, if Reese is listening to this podcast. Yeah, right. Whatever. Which is wishful thinking. But if <laughs> right. Yeah. Reese with the spoons <laughs> listening to this podcast. If you are listening to this podcast, you should hashtag the, the podcast like Reese's book club or whatever. Oh, yeah, you know what I'm right. Yeah, like, okay. Draw her attention. Okay, so Reese, you need to make this into a movie. <laughs> they we want so, it. We demand it. So medical students can watch it because they, our doctors don't read these days. They just watch things. That's kind of, that's a whole different conversation. Anyway, anything else about True Biz by Sarah Novick? I'm getting crickets. So with that, I'm officially going to close this book club session and thank you all for joining me yay i think that was another great discussion of a uh, loaded book i would say and regarding the podcast and book club episodes i'm working my way through it's been a slow process 
I'm very aware that I'm behind. I am working on it. And I am uh, hopeful. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Of course, I would love to get back to those days when I had more time and I was doing, what, four episodes a week? How the heck did I do that? I can't remember. But we will get there one step at a time. And that's it for this episode. Before I go, I wanted to say that your support of my podcast means a lot to me. The easiest way is to buy me a coffee. Go to buymeacoffee.com slash LLTB podcast. Every coffee you buy me helps keep me alert and this podcast going. I'll add the link in the show notes and I thank you. And also, let me tell you about a great audiobook app called Libro.fm, L-I-B-R-O dot F-M. With Libro.fm, you help your own local independent bookstore by buying a credit bundle. Please check out the link in my show notes and thank me later. If you loved this episode or any of my previous episodes, please take a moment to write me a review on Apple Podcasts. Please share this podcast with your family and friends and through your social media channels. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram on Living a Life Through Books. I'm on TikTok. My tag is at Dr. Shnaz Ahmed. You can reach me through email. My address is livingalifethroughbooks at gmail.com. The opening and closing music to this and all my previous episodes was composed by my husband, Brad Slavic. I'm Dr. Shnaz Ahmed with Living a Life Through Books signing off. Remember to water the seeds within you. It's time. It's time.